supports all of our missionaries around the world. And we also have a special guest preacher next Sunday, Sammy Dagger, is going to be here from Beirut, Lebanon, sharing with us about what God is doing in the Middle East. He's been here before, and so he'll be here next Sunday uh, bringing a special focus to this uh, time of looking at missions around the world. So come next week with a special offering. Also, we're, t we're continuing to collect money for our Gabon team, which leaves in about 10 days to go to Central Africa. I know about a couple months ago, we raised a lot of money to build an orphanage, and you might wonder, why would we spend so much money sending eight people over when you could build a whole orphanage for the same price? I would offer to say that once these orphanage, orphanages, health clinics, youth centers are built, someone has to go and do ministry in these centers. And we're also praying that some of the young people on our team would feel called to come back and spend a year, two years, five years serving in these orphanages. So I think it's a worthy investment to give toward short-term missions. So come next week also with a special gift for our Gabon team, which is leaving in 10 days. When God looks at you, what does he see? Imagine yourself right now standing in front of God. Just try to picture it, if you will. How does God respond to you? Is he pleased? Is he disappointed? And, and why? Why is he pleased? Or why is he disappointed? What kind of expression is on his face? Is it, it is a big ear-to-ear -ear gleaming grin? Or is it a look of disgust? And what do you say if... What does he say to you? If, if God were to use words, would he say, you know, I really love you? Or would he say, you know, you could probably try a little bit harder to do a little bit better. And what about you? What is your posture? Do, do you brace for, for a big hug? Or, or do you look away and, and look down? averting eye contact, perhaps even waiting for a strike across the face. How does God respond to you? If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. It's in those pages that stick together in your Bible. You may need to use the table of contents to get there, or I could say to you it's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. So go to Matthew and turn left just a few pages, and you will find Zechariah. And today we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This passage of Scripture answers the question, how can a defiled, sinful people stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God? It answers the question, how can a people who fall so far short of God's glory, enjoy relationship with Him. About five years ago, a young girl came up to me at church. Actually, someone found me and said that she was looking for me, and so I came and I found her, and she says, Pastor Glenn, I got dressed this morning to come to church to tell you that I can't come to church today. And I thought, okay, this is, this is not making sense to me. You got up, you got dressed, you, you have to be somewhere, you, you're going somewhere, I don't understand. And, and she said to me, I can't, I can't stay at church, I've got to go home. And I said, can you, can you clarify, like, why? And she says, she starts tearing up and she says, I, I did something 
I did something really bad last night. I, I did that thing that Christians aren't supposed to do before they get married, and so I can't stay at church today, and I just wanted to come and tell you, and now I'm going to go back home, and I said to her, I said, I said, would you please stay? Because this is exactly the place that, that you should be. And, and at this point, she's crying uncontrollably, uncontrollably, and she says, but won't God strike me dead? second service was already starting and, and I said people were gathering and singing and I said I wanted to look out there there are about 350 people in line in front of you and she says to me but they look so holy and put together and I said yeah they do don't they but they need Jesus just as much as you do she stayed you see, I, here's how I think many of us judge ourselves in relation to God. I feel like we have a tendency to judge ourselves based on our performance, don't we? If it's been a pretty good week, then we feel like we must be okay with God. If we can look back and say, I did pretty good this week. I had my quiet time nearly every day. I went to a small group. I didn't commit adultery, I didn't look at pornography, I didn't steal anything, I didn't use a bad word when I stubbed my toe, and I even prayed for a missionary. God must be smiling at me right now. And others of you, like my friend, feel like, you know, it hasn't been a good week. Things didn't go well. I drank too much, I struggled on the computer. I'm not even sure where my Bible is. I got the email prayer updates from the church, but I just pressed delete without even looking at them. I yelled at my kids too much. I yelled at my husband too much. And quite honestly, God just seems a little bit distant. I'm sure he's probably pretty disappointed with me this week. We judge ourselves based on our performance. My hope today is by looking at Zechariah chapter 3 that you and I will find both encouragement and challenge from this passage. Let's pray together. God, we bow before you. We ask you to be our teacher. Help us today to gain a right perspective on our standing before you. Help us to come to a more clear understanding of the gospel, not just for our own personal benefit, but also so that we can be a source of encouragement to others, especially those who are struggling. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word and lead us to respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I trust that you have found Zechariah 3 by now. In Zechariah 3, the prophet has a vision. Actually, this is the fourth vision of the book of Zechariah. Zechariah has this vision, and he pictures Joshua the high priest standing in the presence of God. Joshua is standing in the presence of the angel of the Lord. Old Testament scholars are in general agreement that the angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Read with me Zechariah 3. Let's just look at 1 through 5 to start with. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, that is the Lord, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing 
at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then he said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Let me give you just a very brief historical context of the book of Zechariah. Around 586 B.C., Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in, decimated the city, destroyed the wall that surrounded Jerusalem. They destroyed this magnificent temple that Solomon had built nearly 400 years prior. And the Babylonians carried God's people about 1,100 miles from their homeland back to Babylon, which would be modern-day Iraq. And God's people lived in exile in Babylon for about 66 years. This was a time of spiritual stagnation for God's people. They were defeated. They were lacking in hope. They were lacking in spiritual fervor. Around 539 B.C., about 66 years after the exile, another superpower rose, the Persians. And almost overnight came in and destroyed the Babylonians. This allowed God's people to be free once again and to return to Jerusalem. They were commanded to rebuild the city, to rebuild the wall, and most importantly, to rebuild this temple of God that had been destroyed. Zechariah was raised up as a prophet of God to help Israel regain her hope. Zechariah was raised up to help Israel once again renew her dedication to following God. The name Zechariah itself means God remembers. God remembers his people. God has not forgotten. Notice particularly in verse 3, Joshua the high priest was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord. Joshua is the high priest. He's entered the presence of God, and his clothes are filthy. They're unclean. This is a major problem. Let me explain a little bit of procedure. In the Old Testament, the temple was divided up into various sections. And as you move from the outside toward the inside, there were greater restrictions that were put in place as one entered what was called the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. There was this outer courtyard area where worshipers gathered. There was a big altar there. There was a giant pool of water. There were some 40,000 Levites who were dedicated to singing and playing musical instruments. It was a festive place. It was a place of worship and prayer and sacrifice. And so the people would gather in the outer courts as you move toward the holy place, a greater restriction was put there. This was a place where the priest went. The priest did their duties in the holy place. There was a table there with bread on it, some 
some lampstands, some other furniture. And the priest went there to pray and make intercession on behalf of the people. There was this one section of the temple called the most holy place. The highest of restrictions were put here. This place was closed off to everyone. This was the place where God dwelt. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. No one entered the Holy of Holies except for the high priest on one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest went through various rituals to make sure he was clean before God, and then he would enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people. There was already, by this time, historical precedent of two priests being struck dead by God for procedural missteps. The priest took this very seriously. To enter into the most holy place unclean meant certain death. There was already precedent of God killing priests for missing steps. A week prior to the Day of Atonement, the high priest basically camped out at the temple to make sure he didn't get into any kind of trouble. For seven days, he stayed at the temple to, to avoid things like touching something unclean, anything that might defile him. On the Day of Atonement, various sacrifices were made on behalf of the high priest so that when he entered the most holy place, it would be certain that he was in right standing before God. Before the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, a, a number of priests gathered around and they stripped him down and gave him a bath from head to toe, making sure that there was not a single piece of dirt on his body. After they bathed the high priest, they would clothe him in a white tunic and completely clean garments. They would put a clean turban on his head. So there was a group effort to make sure that the high priest was 100% clean when he entered the Holy of Holies. As he would enter, he would take a container with burning incense to form this cloud around him to obscure his presence as he approached God. This was done with great fear and trepidation. He was entering the very presence of God to represent the people. So in Zechariah 3, when the prophet has a vision of Josiah the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord in filthy garments. This should get your attention. Numerous steps were taken to ensure that this would not happen. There was painstaking ritual to make sure that the high priest would enter completely clean. No priest in his right mind would enter into God's presence wearing filthy garments. This would mean certain death. I should also tell you that there is a translation issue here with the words filthy garments. The English translation has actually been sanitized a little bit to clean it up, to make it a little more palatable in church. But I think it's relevant for me to tell you what these words literally mean. Dr. Walter Kaiser, my former Old Testament professor, and seminary president says a right translation here is dung spattered garments. In other words, not only are his clothes dirty, but the high priest is covered from head to toe in excrement. 
How could this be? The priest went through painstaking ritual to ensure that when the high priest stood before God, he was completely clean. All of his effort to be clean, this is how he appeared before God. This comes back to my original question. When God looks at you, what does he see? When God looks at you, how does he see you? Zechariah chapter 3 should bring some clarity to this question. Here is a man, a high priest, who knows God, who loves God. He has an extremely high regard for God's law. He goes through the most intense ritual possible to make himself clean before God, and yet he falls terribly short. He appears as though he is covered from head to toe and done. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The Bible says that our absolute best, my absolute best efforts to be righteous fall short. That on my, my best, most righteous day, before God, I appear as one wearing filthy garments. And here's a question I wrestle with a lot. If this is what my best looks like, what on earth must my worst day be? How must I look on the worst, in my worst condition? As Joshua the high priest stands before the angel of the Lord in his filthy garments, notice who else is there. Satan, the accuser. The word Satan literally means the adversary, one who stands opposed to God. He's there in the presence of God, accusing, pointing his finger at Joshua, saying, look at him, look at his garments. He's filthy. He's covered from head to toe. He falls short, God. He deserves death. Do you ever feel this way about your own sins? That the accuser has a way of ever keeping before you all the wrongs that you've ever done. He has a way of whispering into your ear, remember what you did on Thursday? Remember what you did last month? Remember what you did back in 1983? Remember all that you've done and how bad you've been? And sometimes you come and you try to stand up and you try to sing a song and, and that whisper is in your ear what you did just yesterday? Remember how bad you are? Who are you to sing to God? Or you pick up your Bible at home and you try to have a quiet time and that voice whispers, who do you think you are? Trying to read your Bible? Or it's time to take communion and that voice says, you're not worthy. Who are you? Who are you to eat the bread? drink the juice. Who do you think you are? You don't deserve this. You're unworthy. You're dirty. You're unclean. And it can get almost debilitating, can it? It can just almost completely shut you down. This constant barrage, this constant reminder, this constant finger pointing. 
accusations. Remember what you've done. Martin Luther was one of the great Christian reformers who lived back in the 16th century. And Martin Luther felt that he was often under Satan's attack, that he was constantly being harassed and reminded of his past sins. One night, Martin Luther had a dream. And in this dream, Satan is standing before him with this really long scroll, probably went to the ground and continued to roll out. And and in this dream, Satan is reading from this scroll, and it contains all of Luther's sins since he was a young boy. And in the dream, Satan is reading and continues to read and remind Martin Luther of all the sins that he has committed until finally Luther stands up and he throws his inkwell across the room and he shouts at Satan. He says, it's all true. It's all true, Satan. All of these sins are true and more that you don't even know about. But God knows about them. God knows every sin I've ever committed. And at the bottom of your scroll, Satan, God writes the words, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. It's the right response, isn't it? When Satan whispers in your ear, when the enemy accuses, the right response is, yeah, yeah, that did happen yesterday. That's true. Yeah, that did happen in 1983. Yeah, that did happen a month ago. It's all true. And the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. So leave me alone. Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The passage continues to answer the question, no one and nothing, no one and nothing can separate God's elect from the love of Christ. Look at how God responds in Zechariah 3. Notice how the angel of the Lord responds to Joshua's filthy garments. Verse 4, the angel said to those who are standing before him, take off his filthy garments. But then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. It's gone. It's no more. I will put rich garments on you. Then he said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Instead of condemning him or killing him, Jesus provides a remedy for Joshua's filthy garments. Instead of condemning him, Jesus redresses him. Instead of killing him, Jesus restores him. Instead of him, instead of telling him, try harder, go take another bath, try redressing, Jesus says, I have taken away your sins. This is called grace. God acts on behalf of sinful people to make them able to stand in his presence. Some of you who are here today, you need to create an image in your mind of Jesus redressing you. Some of you need to create an image of your mind of Jesus 
making you clean, replacing your filthy garments. You need to create an image of God setting you free from your sin. God offers a remedy, not condemnation. And God wants to set you free from your sin and shame. Instead of hiding from Him, God invites us to run to Him. We sang about that in in a song earlier. I'm running to your arms. God wants us to come to Him. Look at verse 6. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. Catch this phrase. I am going to bring my servant the branch. We'll come back to that. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, or another way to translate this, or seven fountains, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. Catch this. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. After redressing Joshua, Jesus exhorts him, continue to walk in my ways. Continue to obey. And then Jesus says, I am going to send the branch. To you and me, this language might seem a little bit cryptic, but not to readers of the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah talked about this. God said in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, He said, Therefore, He said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. One of God's promises in the Old Testament is that He will send Jesus to deal with sin once and for all, very decisively, in a single day. God will send the branch who will reign as a righteous and just king. The branch will serve as a great high priest over the people of God. And God says he will send the branch and in a single day I will remove the iniquity of the land. One act of grace for all time. When Jesus died on the cross, something very interesting happened. As the sky turned dark and and Jesus breathed his last there on the cross, this curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. The curtain was ripped into symbolizing that you and I now have access into the Holy of Holies. What once could occur only on one day of the year by one person who went through painstaking ritual can now occur 
at any time. You and I are invited to enter into God's presence because in a single day, God set you free. In a single day, God removed the iniquity from the land. Such that the writer of Hebrews can say, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In a single day, Jesus offered the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And for this reason, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews says that you and I can approach God with a posture of confidence. We don't have to look down. We don't have to look away. We don't have to cower and guard ourselves. The writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us approach confidently. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God invites us to run to him, to come confidently into his presence. Because it's there that we find grace and mercy and healing from our sin and shame. In a single day, God has given each of you access to the Holy of Holies. No longer is there a need for a priest to intercede on your behalf. Jesus, your high priest, lives to make intercession for you. Jesus is constantly defending your case, saying that this one is mine. This one is clean. This one is set free. I just want to close by reading a gospel story from the New Testament. I'm not going to comment on it, so listen, let it soak in. You don't even need to turn there. Just listen. It comes from Luke 18. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told a parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. I fast two times a week and I give 10% of all I get even birthday money. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's only one way to be right with God. It's not by trying to make yourself more holy. It's not by trying to dress up better on the outside. It's not by trying harder to keep more rules. It comes only by one way. By admitting your need, by agreeing, yes, I have sinned. Yes, I can only be right with God if Jesus redresses me. My righteous acts are like filthy rags. 
So when God looks at you, what does he see? Who does he see? How does he see you? I can assure you that if you are a follower of Jesus, that when God looks at you, there's a big smile on his face because you're his little boy. You're his little girl. When God looks at you, there's a big smile on his face because he sees not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. His love for you is not, debate, is not based on your performance. It's not based on how well you keep the rules. It's based on His Son, Jesus. Today we come to the Lord's table, and we're going to celebrate together. The elders can go ahead and find their way to the back and, and just wait back there till I pray. But we come to the table, and this is about celebrating what Jesus accomplished in a single day. Coming to the table is about remembering something. It's about remembering that your righteousness is like filthy rags, but Jesus makes you right before God. And now when God sees you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. Coming to the table is a time of remembering that you were once clothed in filthy garments. It's a time of remembering that God has made you clean. It's a time of saying to that voice that whispers in your ear, you're unworthy. It's a time of saying, exactly. That's what makes me worthy to come to the table is my admission that I am unworthy. Isn't that really cool? What makes you worthy to participate today is you're admitting, I'm not worthy. In and of myself, I have nothing to bring to the table. And so as I eat the bread and as I drink the juice, I, I remember that, that what makes me right before God is the work of Christ. 